In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening. Help us to open our minds and our hearts so that we can truly understand what you are saying to us through Holy Scripture. Uh, really open our minds so that we understand the significance of what is written rather than today's meaning of some of those same words. This is the problem with so many uh, 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 reading the Bible in general, is that we have a tendency to interpret the words that we're reading in today's understanding, and yet that's not always what they mean. So give us really uh, an opening here that we can penetrate uh, the language and get into the real meaning. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name. Well, I appreciate all of you coming out on such a rainy night. Uh, it really shows your interest in in what we are uh, discussing, and so that's commendable. Uh, it looks like you might need Noah's Ark to go home, but uh, I hope that you all get there safely. Before we get into the subject of the evening, I'd like to bring up a few uh, points that were brought up last week. Uh, one, one or two during the class and a couple afterward. All right. Uh, let's begin with the, uh, the couple of the questions after the class last week. And one is, um, apparently I had said something about Baptism. I don't recall the exact context, uh, but the first one that asked me, did Jesus actually baptize? As it says um, in chapter 3, um, in the commentary more so than in the actual words. Um, if you go to page 22 of your booklet here, it says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the region of Judea where uh, he spent some time with them baptizing. All right, that would imply that Jesus was doing the baptizing. The church has always maintained that Jesus himself did not baptize, and that is, if you go over to the next page, under chapter 4, verse 2, it says, well, verse 1, part B says, the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, in parenthesis, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, just his disciples. Let me explain. Baptizing was not something new that Jesus invented. As we know, John the baptizer was baptizing long before Jesus started his public ministry. Okay. And baptism was a pious ritual that people went through on a personal basis and did this long before Jesus and the apostles. On not a regular basis, it was not something that was 
organized or sanctioned by Judaism, but it was something that people did on their own. It was not the same level of baptism that we have today. Nor was it the same level of baptism that Jesus commended the apostles to do after his death and resurrection, such as at the end of Matthew's gospel. The ending actually is, go forth and baptize all in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The church has always said that Jesus did not baptize himself or was not actually engaged in baptizing and prior to his death and resurrection that would have been inappropriate anyways because if he had said uh, you know I baptize you in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit the people would have said well who is this Son and who is this Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has not come yet Pentecost had not come, and the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on all believers. So it would have been an inappropriate um, action on Jesus' part to talk about the Trinity being imparted to someone when they knew nothing about it. And really the apostles didn't know much about it because this book tells us that most of this information about the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles at the Last Supper. All right. So the apostles may have followed John the Baptist ritual in the pious act of baptizing with water as a personal devotion. All right. It was a personal turning from sin and uh, commending themselves, the individual commending him or herself um, to God, the God of Israel. All right, that's, that's as much as I can tell you because there's very, very little written. I've read, uh, I've researched this in several books and there's so little written, but the end result is that Jesus himself did not engage in baptizing. All right. Um, another comment was made, or a question was asked after the meeting last week, of the 40 days of Lent. If you really count 40 or 6 times 7, that's 42. That takes us up to the Wednesday before Easter. Well, then you've got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. So you really got about five days that uh, are questionable, all right? The thing is, as we've always said, 40 in biblical understanding is not a precise number. Secondly, Lent, as we think of it, a time of penance ends on Wednesday before Easter. The next three days are called the Triduum, Latin for three days, coincidental. Uh, and of course, that's the time period uh, in actually Jesus preparing um, 
for the Last Supper, initiating the Holy Eucharist, initiating holy orders, and instructing his apostles. And that's what we will be studying here in the next over the next four weeks after tonight. So, if you are trying to pinpoint the 40 days, it really is not a precise number. And in biblical uh, writings, it almost never is. Yes? Sundays are not days of Lent. You take the Sundays out of four days. Well, <laughs> yes, a lot of people have taught that. And that wasn't correct, all right? What is they're saying is the rules of fast and abstinence are not observed on Sunday. But you can't take, you know, something that is fixed there. It's like taking Sunday off the calendar. You know, uh-uh, can't do that, all right? 40 has never been, in biblical writings, a precise number. It is always thereabouts. For example, Jesus, and of course this is where it comes from, Jesus went into the desert at the beginning of his public ministry uh, for 40 days. No one had a calendar that said he went from, you know, March the 1st to May 15th, uh, or whatever, you know, I'm, not, I'm just throwing out dates. Uh, uh, the 40 days and 40 nights that it rained on Noah's Ark, did he make little notches on the wall, you know, to indicate how many days he was there? No, no, that was the termites that made those. <laughs> Just two. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, that's why the dark sunk, you know, at the end. That's right. All right. A couple more serious points. Um, one person brought up in the class uh, the fact that meat being given up has sort of lost its meaning. And I totally agree with that as far as that goes. But look at it this way. The whole idea of penance during Lent is a matter of the mind and the heart, more so than the action. If the mind and the heart are not really putting forth the action, whatever you are doing then is somewhat worthless. So, it is not so much the meat. The meat, giving that up, is a symbol of something far greater the mind and the heart being given up in the form of penance. Right. And Steve mentioned that one of the ways, this is a different subject, Steve mentioned that one of the ways that we abide in Christ, or and we were talking about the vine and the branches, was through the Holy Eucharist, the receiving of Holy Communion. And that is true, and I totally agree with that. But again, if the mind and the heart is not connected to what you are doing, then your receiving of the Holy Eucharist is somewhat void. Because the whole idea of our faith is to make it submissive to the will of God. 
I've said that right up front in the first lesson, is that the whole idea of the Gospel of John is really a matter of the mind and the heart over evil. The whole idea of submitting our will to the will of God. And of course, what we're also saying in this gospel is that it is a battle between God and Satan with mankind really as pawns. We are in the middle of that battle. And God is saying that if we commit ourselves to him, that we will enjoy life eternal with him in heaven. But if we decide to go the other way, or another way, then we take our chances. I'm not going to go any further with that subject. But, Anna, I just see questions all over. No, just one question getting back to the baptism of the Jewish people today. Yes. Do they have anything like that today? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. They have a dedication service or a ceremony uh, for newborn children, uh, but Protestants uh, do too. Uh, the dedication is actually when Jesus, uh, or rather Joseph and Mary, took the baby Jesus to the temple, you know, and offered the two turtle doves or whatever it was. Uh, that's the dedication ceremony, and that traditionally was when the child was given his name. And they still have that. Yes. Arne, did you have a question? St. Augustine was the one that sort of defined it. Yes. So what happened to the people prior? No, there's no connection. No. Well, but baptism. Well, baptism. Baptism. Original sin. Well, that I will agree with the second part of that. Forget original sin. Exactly. All right? Forget original sin. Everybody, forget it. Not that it isn't there. But we are not and never have been guilty of original sin. We suffer the consequences of it, but not the guilt of it. Okay? So many people for centuries suffered with that problem. I've got to baptize my baby if he's if he or she dies before he's baptized he'll, he'll go to hell or maybe limbo never mind about that god is far more gracious and loving and you know is not going to be so picky about that kind of thing all right yes it's wise to have a child baptized as soon as it's convenient all right but it's, baptism is more for the adults who are coming into the faith 
not more important because baptism is the second most important sacrament. Uh, but as far as the understanding of it all and the rules and the regulations of it all. But the whole idea of uh, baptism, you need to get baptized to get rid of original sin, that's not the important part of the baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of initiation into the family of God, into the faith, and into the Catholic Church. Most important. Secondly, it imparts the Holy Spirit into the individual receiving baptism. Um, now, yes, and as a side issue, it removes some of the consequences of original sin. But that is a minor thing. And then you can all go home and have a big party. All right. Any other questions on those subjects? Okay. Any other questions? This might be an <clears throat> indication of the concept of when this was written. But in the opening of chapter 17, Christ is quoted as saying, And the only one to whom you sent is Jesus Christ. Now, was he known as Jesus Christ when he was alive? No. No. That came in much later. That came in much later. I'm sorry? Before John died, yes. Towards the end of the first century. Yes. You see, the whole idea is he was called Jesus the Messiah. And if you translate that from the Hebrew through the Greek, through the Latin to English, it comes out Christ. Okay? The word Christ or Messiah means the anointed one. And this is what the Jewish people were looking for for two or three centuries before Christ. And they always referred to him as the anointed one of God. And if you sort of condense that into the Hebrew, it comes up Messiah, or actually Meshua. Okay. Um, and if you sort of put that back into an English context, it is called, it comes out Jesus the anointed one, or Jesus the Christ. And you don't even have to say the because it's implied. But that, <laughs> some people think it's Jesus' last name. Well, uh, in a way, you might say, well, could be. Uh, actually, it's a title more than a name. All right. Any other questions on those subjects? Oh, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, the question is, even though there is a parish uh, retreat next Tuesday evening, actually it runs from Monday through Thursday, um, there will be a meeting in here. And that is because half of the people in here come from other parishes. And are, you know, they may have something going on in their parish, but I can't make adjustments you know, to suit everybody. So there will be a uh, meeting in here, and uh, I'll just have to leave it up to you to see what is more important. But if you don't come in, I'll call your mother. <laughs> okay. 
let's let's go on to chapter 17. Chapter 17 to me is one of the most beautiful chapters of the whole book. Not that the whole book isn't beautiful in itself, but I think it's it's sort of the well, the cream of the crop, you might say. Chapter 17 is a tra transitional chapter in that at this point in time in Jesus' life, in Jesus' ministry, the missionary part of his mission has now been completed. That is, teaching the apostles as much as he possibly could, uh, giving them authority and instructions on carrying his teachings forward, and performing many miracles to kind of back up what he was saying, as well as to show his love and compassion uh, for mankind in general. Those are the reasons that Jesus' first part of his mission was all about. You know, my grammar isn't the greatest there, but uh, you know, get the point, I hope. All right. Now he has completed that part. He knows exactly what's coming. And so what he's now doing is preparing not only himself, but in a way he's preparing the apostles for his end, his death uh, and burial, etc. He had never mentioned the resurrection uh, in any of the next few chapters here. Okay. So chapter 17 is... Um, as I said, a transitional chapter. And it is one long prayer. It is the longest prayer of Jesus in all of the New Testament. And so this is why I really want you to pay close attention and so that you can get out as much as you can from this. I want to go through it word by word because, as I said in our little prayer up front, that many of the words used here have a slightly different meaning. The first part, that is through uh, verse 6, chapter 17, verse through 6, is Jesus sort of praying for himself says, when Jesus had said this, in other words, when he had given all of the information that he possibly could to the apostles, he raised his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that your Son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to all you gave him. Uh, there's a mouthful there, but let's go back. His hour had not come. Remember in the story of uh, the marriage feast at Cana, when Mary, his mother, says to him, they've run out of wine, and he says to them, woman, what 
Why do you care about that? My hour has not come. This term, my hour or the hour, does not mean 60 minutes. Okay? Tick, 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 60 minutes. It means the point of or culmination, really, of what his mission is. And that really is his death. That's the main reason that he came to earth. Not only to teach and preach and heal, but to die for love of mankind. Okay? So now is the time when that is going to happen. And of course, as I've said before, Jesus knew right from the beginning, certainly from the beginning at least, uh, of his baptism, or more so from, oh, let me ask you, from what other major event in Jesus' life did he know that he was going to die? Anyone? Transfiguration, yes, of course. Thank you, Gene. Yes, in the transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus and the Father in front of Peter, James, and John. Okay, And the discussion between Moses and Elijah and Jesus was about his death. So whether Jesus knew about his death in detail before that or not, we don't know. We assume he did. Okay. The hour has now come, okay, and will begin shortly after in this time period. Okay. So, give glory to your son so that your son may glorify you, just as you gave him authority over all people. Let's go back. Glory in this case is really what Jesus is asking for is the glory that was his before he became human. He always existed. He is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. He always existed. He had equal glory with the Father when he was in heaven before he came to earth. All right, And now he's asking uh, for that back. What it's really meaning here in the, another way is that his mission has now come to its fulfillment. And what he wants is recognition of that. Remember, he's still human. He's still human, and that human element wants some encouragement. And that's part of it here. Just as you gave him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to all you gave him. If you go back to page 32, chapter, I mean, verse 24, this is chapter 5, verse 24, page 32, it's up in the left, uh, the right hand side of the scripture reading. It says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has not will have, 
but has eternal life and will not come to condemnation. In other words, one who has who has submitted uh, their will or made their will submissive to the will of God and obeys him through the church, then eternal life has already begun in him. It is not something that we have to wait until we die, you know, and sort of be kept guessing uh, until we get to the pearly gates. If you have truly committed yourself to Christ, or to the Father through Christ, then, and you live according to that way, and make all your decisions and so forth that way, then eternal life has already begun within you. And that is what is meant in chapter 5, and that is what is meant in chapter 17. Because Jesus is still on earth, he is giving his apostles the kernels or the seed of eternal life and he is asking that they be blessed. And this is eternal life, that they should know you, the only true God and the one whom you sent. Very important statement, that they should know you. Know, K-N-O-W, in this context, does not mean a visual recognition. You know, oh, you see... Uh, Pete over there. Well, I recognize Pete even in the crowd. He's the tallest one over there. No, that is not what it means. It means to experience. Knowing God in this context means to experience him. And the only way that you can truly experience God is when your mind and heart is given to him in prayer. Now, prayer can also mean in receiving the Eucharist, because that is a great prayer in itself, provided that the mind and the heart is in sync. Sync. So, uh, let me kind of dwell on that another minute or so. For example, we all know the story when the Virgin Mary received the announcement from the angel that she was to be the mother of God. And she says, well, how can this be? Because I don't know man. That's the general word used in most Bibles. Now, she didn't doesn't mean that she doesn't know a man. In our context, our understanding, she had a father, obviously, and maybe she had brothers and sisters, we're not sure. All right. What she is saying is, how can I become a mother when I have never experienced any you know, intimate relationship with a man? And this is what is meant here, an intimate relationship. And then that that sentence there is added on uh, that they should know you, 
Father, the only true God, and the one whom you sent. Now, I talked about this last week, and in fact, I brought a copy of that book again this week, if anyone wishes to look at it or make note of it, get one of their own. Christ, the one sent, sent by the Father. All right, an extremely good book. A little difficult to read because it's 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 theology, but it's well worth it, particularly as a Lenten exercise. All right, the whole idea is uh, on this subject is that the Father sent the Son to Earth to be the substitutionary or the atonement for the sins of mankind because mankind could do nothing or had nothing that could be offered as a sacrifice for his own sin. And therefore Christ had or God had to send himself or part of himself to earth to fulfill that. And so Christ comes to earth in the form of a man. And he was truly a human, (coughs) excuse me, he was truly a human being, otherwise it would have just been a sham. So anyone that doubts whether Jesus was human had better kind of rethink that because it is extremely important and vital to the whole idea of your faith. I glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do. And now glorify me, Father, with you, with the glory that I had with you before the world began, before he became a human being. And so glorification, as it means to us, now not to Jesus, but to us, means that we accomplish the role that God has given to each of us in his plan of salvation. Uh, The church does not, and and I'm sorry to say this, but I got to say it, the church has never really pushed that idea. And yet they will say, well, everybody has a vocation. Well, all right, but what does the word vocation mean, you know? It sort of hangs out there that doesn't connect. Or they'll say a calling. Uh, Protestant churches use the word calling, which I think is actually in some ways a little more personal, a little nicer uh, than vocation. because Vocation just kind of hangs out there. I prefer to call it our role in God's plan of salvation because then you can connect it to God and into the bigger plan. And that, of course, is mentioned in the Bible in several places, particularly in St. Paul's uh, letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. No, chapter 1, verse 3. Okay. But accomplishing his mission was what gives glory to the Father, because it was the Father who sent Christ in the first place. Make sense? All right. 
Then it goes on to say, I revealed your name to those who you gave me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and now they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you gave me is from you, because the words you gave me I have given to them. And they accepted them and truly understood that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Uh, it's, uh, it's not a play on words. There's a lot of sort of back and forth and almost double talk there. But the whole idea is because the Father and the Son, as well as with the Holy Spirit, are so united in their understanding of each other's role, and they're so in agape-type love of each other that they act and think of as one person. And now one is completing his role in this overall plan of salvation and is expecting <coughs> to return to heaven to receive the glory that was or return to the glory that was his before he came to earth. But what he's trying to do also here is to get us to see the necessity to have a relationship with the Father uh, and to see the roles that each one is playing here. And of course, this is somewhat depicted in this uh, circular illustration that I've well, that I gave you in the first meeting. I thought I had a copy here, and I think I do somewhere. Yeah. All right. Anybody not have a copy of this? Okay. I'm sure everyone does. I hope everyone does. All right. Some may have, be on colored paper. It's all the same. Okay. It's important that you kind of visualize what we're talking about in that context, because there is one God, but there are three distinct persons. Those three persons are totally equal to each other but their roles are different. And so you've got to look at it. In their personhood, they are equal. In their roles, they are different. The role of the son is submissive uh, or secondary to the father. And the role of the Holy Spirit is secondary to the father and the son. Any They're equal in personhood, but they are uh, different in, or they're submissive, let's put it this way, in their roles. What do you mean? I, I, I just mean one thing. In their personhood, they are different? No, in their personhood, they are exactly equal. But in their roles, they are submissive. 
And in some other parts of the Bible, you will see this same point being made and comparing it to the roles of husband and wife. Husband and wife, man and wife, man and woman are equal in the eyes of God, but their roles are different. All right, and the wife's role is submissive to the husband, or should be. That doesn't mean that one is person is better than the other. It's the the roles that they are playing. Okay. Now don't throw any rotten tomatoes at me. You know, I always get in trouble, and so did Saint Paul. You know, he got his head chopped off. Okay. Let's move on. Part 2 begins at verse 9. Part 2 is where Christ in this prayer prays for his immediate apostles, immediate disciples. It says, I pray for them, meaning those who are in the room with him, the apostles. I do not pray for the world, but for the, for the ones you have given me because they are yours. They are yours in the context of submitting their will. And everything of mine is yours and everything of yours is mine and I have been glorified in them because they have taken on his role. The apostles now are taking or about to take on the role of Christ. And that is primarily to evangelize and develop the church. And now I will no longer be in the world, but they are in the world. And while I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are one. Again, the one means united in mind and in heart. Now, there are seven important points here, and I will try to point them out as we go. All right? The first one is verse 12. When I was with them, I protected them in your name that you gave me. Item two is, I guarded them. And that's um, at the second part of that same verse. I guarded them, and none of them was lost except the son of destruction, Judas, of course, in order that the scripture might be fulfilled. Number three is with, Verse 13, but now I am coming to you, Father, parentheses. Number four is, I speak this in the world so that they may share my joy completely. Remember last week we talked about joy being the expression of our values. See how that fits to what we talked about last week. 
I speak this in the world so that they may share my joy. In other words, the value of what I am doing completely. Number five, I gave them your word and the world hated them because they do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world because they have given themselves wholeheartedly to the will of the Father. Number six, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. Consecrate them in the truth, for your word is truth, as you sent me into the world. And number seven, so I send them into the world, and I consecrate myself for them, so that they also may be consecrated in truth. Seven major points. And this sort of gives us sort of a bird's eye view, you might say, of God's relationship with Christ and Christ's relationship with his apostles. And hopefully, as we will see in the next section here, how that is to be transmitted by the apostles through the bishops down to all disciples, including us today. It should also tell us that we had better start thinking about our relationship with the Father through the Son, because that is the essence of our faith. Just going to church on Sunday won't cut it. And that's unfortunate. And yet we never hear anybody talk about that at the pulpit. And I'm, I really feel badly about it because it is such a vital part of our faith that we have a relationship with the, with the Father through the Son. Let us talk about part three. Part three is where Christ is now praying for those disciples who will come later through the workings, the teachings, the efforts of the immediate apostles and their descendants. Not biological descendants, but those descendants in religious orders. I pray not only for them, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may be all in one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. The whole message here is unity, the unity of belief and the unity of practicing that belief through the church. I lost my place. <clears throat> Father, uh, um, 
21. All right, thank you. Uh, so that they may all that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, us as a unit. All right, that the world may believe that you sent me. The word or the phrase you sent me or the one who sent me is probably mentioned 20 or 30 times in these last two chapters because it is so vitally important. Remember that I said uh, several times that in Jewish writing or even ancient writing, even outside of Judaism, the way that the writers would uh, imply or underline or underscore a given point is to repeat it two or three times, sometimes using slightly different words, but uh, you would hear it over and over just as we have heard here. And I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me and that they may be brought to perfection as one. One meaning unity in mind and heart. And that the world may know that you sent me and that you love them even as you love me. Father, they are your gift to me. I wish that were I, where I am, they also may be. I wish that where I am, they also may be uh, with me, that they may see my glory that they gave me, that you gave me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, we had mentioned the transfiguration. That was the whole purpose of the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John were privileged to see Christ in his divinity. And they got so frightened, of course, Peter, you know, uh, spouts off some foolish statement about making three booths there. But nevertheless, that's the whole purpose of the transfiguration. Yes, ma'am. Transfiguration, um, I can't give the exact, uh, it's mentioned in both Matthew and Luke's gospel, is where Jesus and three of his apostles go up to a, a high mountain. Huh? Mount Tabor, yes, yes, Mount Tabor, all right. And God the Father appears to Christ, and Christ appears to the apostles in his divinity as part of God. And it's a very interesting story, and I would suggest that you do a little research and read it, because it's meaningful. But there again, the purpose of that scene, the transfiguration, was to give the apostles a glimpse of what they are going to receive when they die and what Christ really is in his divinity. But that didn't really register with them at that time. No, and not all of them saw it. Well, they were speaking in. That's right, particularly Peter, he didn't hear it. 
Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah. I'm sorry, Bill. I didn't. I don't catch. Yes. 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 Peter, James, and John. John the Evangelist. Right. Yes. Okay. Mark it down then. Mark chapter nine, and Matthew seventeen. Is that? It's not in Luke also. Luke nine. Yeah, I thought it was, it was in all three of them. Yes. Very important uh, point there. Excuse me. This whole uh, third section of chapter 17 is really about unity. And when you think about it, those people who have left the Catholic Church to join another church, or in some cases to uh, form their own church, uh, they are missing out in a way because they have left that unity. And that is what Christ is praying for. So it's it's a sad situation there. Um, now, I'm not condemning them because that's not my place or my role. But I feel sad for them because this, you know, what they've done here is done something outside of the will of God. Okay. Just let's leave it at that. Say, Righteous Father, the world also does not know you, but I know you, and they know that you sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. The end of chapter 17. Now, if you go back to the end of chapter 15, the very last words of chapter 15, we didn't talk about this, but it's interesting because the very last words of chapter 15 is, Get up, let us go. Remember, they are at the Last Supper. So, this idea that if those words were not there, chapters 15, 16, and 17 would kind of fit right along. And I'm talking about the end of chapter 14. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I mis misinformed. <clears throat> My first mistake. <laughs> Just like Adam. Huh? Okay. All right. At the end of chapter 14, the last words are, get up, let us go. Meaning that they are at the Last Supper, they have finished what they are doing there, and they're going to the Garden of, of Gethsemane. All right. 
But then, like in an opera, you know, opera, the leading lady gets shot or stabbed or whatever, and she sings for a half hour before she finally dies, you know. Um, this goes on for three more chapters. Well, some scholars believe that these three chapters were probably inserted later. But then if that's true, you they you think they would have taken those words out and put them at the end of 17. So we don't know what what the, the context or what the situation here. But now is the time uh, for John to have included. Let's get up and go. The Seder service that we call the Last Supper is a very interesting uh, ceremony. How many of you have been to a true Judy, Jewish Seder? Okay. It is a really interesting um, celebration, particularly if it is done in the context of uh, true Judaism. All right, It is not a solemn or a sad situation by any means because they are celebrating the escape or the release of the Israelites from Egypt at the time of Moses. So they're celebrating, you know, an exodus. That's what it is. That's where the word comes from. All right. So it's a celebration, uh, but with a lot of meaningful uh, words and songs and so forth. Most of it comes out of your book of Psalms. Chapters 14 through Eight, uh, I mean, chapters 114 through 118 uh, is called the Hillel. Uh, and those are sung during the ceremony at different parts. The ceremony also includes four uh, specific sacramental cups of wine to be consumed at various points through the, sermon, the ceremony. Each one has its own meaning. Right? And you have a lot of symbolisms that are included there. The main elements of food are bitter herbs, um, a sauce made out of applesauce and nuts and wine and raisins and so forth called heroset and a number of other uh, ingredients. Uh, sometimes, but not necessarily all times, there will be lamb served. That's where the bone comes from, and it must be uh, a fresh uh, and recently uh, slaughtered animal. cannot be over a year old, and the bones cannot be cut or broken. Uh, well, there's reasons for all of that, and the Haggadah, which is the original or detailed program of a crusader, will explain all of that. The interesting point that is made when comparing it to the versions of the Last Supper here in each of the four Gospels is that if you count the number of times that Jesus and his apostles consumed the wine, you'll find that they only consume three cups of wine. And then he says, 
let's get up and go. Meaning that they are going to the Garden of Olives, or Gethsemane, where, of course, Jesus is arrested. We'll get into that more next week. The Seder is not really completed until the fourth cup of wine is consumed with a little bit of prayer and a little bit of ceremony. But Jesus only consumes three cups and then leaves. The idea is that on the cross, he says, I thirst. And they give him wine on a, in a sponge on a stick. And then he says, now it is finished. And that happens to be the last words of the Seder service also. So you see the symbolism that is carried forth from the Jewish Passover celebration to the Catholic Mass. Yes, Anna? One more. Are you truly saying that at the Seder, the bones of the lamb are not broken? That's right. So that this, he wasn't broken? That's right. I didn't know about the first part. There are many things in the Jewish Seder that we have taken into the Catholic Mass. Uh, that is another reason that I highly recommend all of you to read at some point in time between now and Easter the full-length version of Psalm 22. Because when you get to Good Friday, and I would strongly recommend that you read it before Good Friday. Because when you get to that point, you will see that what is going on on Good Friday was predicted in this psalm two or three hundred years before Christ. And the first part of this, that psalm is the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many people think that Jesus is crying this out simply because he's suffering, and part of that may be true. But what he's really saying is to the soldiers uh, and, you know, anyone else that is in the process of the crucifixion, actually nailing him to the cross and putting him up is this has all been prophesied in the Jewish scriptures hundreds of years ago that this would happen and now you fellas are fulfilling this but the important thing is that on the third day I will rise from the dead because the second part Psalm 22 is divided into two parts. The second part of that is a clear prediction of the resurrection. Not in the words that we would expect, but when we think about it and what it says, it's a victory psalm. A very victory psalm. The first part details so much. You know, the casting of lots for Christ's clothes, 
the fact that the bones weren't broken, um, and a number of things, the nails, etc. So it is a beautiful exercise in itself to spend 10 or 15 minutes reading that psalm and then translating that in your mind to the day of the crucifixion and see how they compare. Uh, what did you get out of all of this chapter 17? Anyone? He emphasizes the love that the father has for the son and the son has and wants to be with humanity. Good. Yes. Very much so. Love, of course, is the dominant theme throughout all of the Gospels. That is the purpose for which Christ was sent by the Father to earth out of love for mankind and feeling sorry for God's creation that couldn't do anything really for themselves to obtain eternal life because they, we are all sin, sinners. All right? Some more than others, obviously. Okay. So, yes, it was the love that sent Christ to us to be the sacrificial offering. Anyone else? Norm? Yes. Now, again, let's talk about the word name. Uh, there was a... Oh, no wonder I didn't find it. I'm on the wrong page. <clears throat> Let's go to page 83. Right in the middle, in the commentary, where it says, uh, verse 26, then it says, revealing God's name is better understood as disclosing the essence, the nature, and the quality of God rather than a repetition of a proper name. In other words, as I have said several times in the past, we should not tack on the name of Jesus or the Father on the ends of our prayers unless we are truly submitted or committed to the will of God. Because to do so would be asking for something that is outside of our role, our role in God's plan of salvation. And those kinds of prayers are not answered. Remember, no is an answer. Um, and so what this is saying here is, don't take God's name in vain by just thinking it's a magic wand, and by using it, you're going to get whatever you want. Even though the words might say that, ask whatever you want, and it will be given to you. But you're taking that out of context. 
because you must be a committed disciple. And what you sh should be asking for is only that which is part of your role in God's plan of salvation. And then God cannot refuse. Because if you are asking for something that is necessary to complete your role or fulfill your role, he can't refuse you. And that's why he can say so emphatically, ask whatever you want and I'll do it for you. But what he's leaving out in the words is the qualification that it's got to be in line with your role in God's plan of salvation. Okay. Um, Anytime you make a serious decision of really wanting some earthly thing, whether it be for yourself or someone else, you should spend some time in prayer. And if you're still kind of guessing, you know, that's an answer in itself. It's when you receive peace about whatever you're asking for. Then you know it'll happen. Yes, sir. Last week, Peter invited me on the lecture. You mentioned that chapter 17 is where you start. It is. And I was, I was thinking of that as I read it. And two thoughts struck me. Number one, it was a beautiful prayer. And number two, it was, it was a prayer that, that Jesus didn't need to say because God already knew it. It was a prayer those around him here. Yes, very much so. That's a good point. That's a good, good point. Yes. These were things that Jesus didn't need to say at all. But he did it because it was important for the disciples, the apostles, to hear. And for it to be in this book as well. For us to hear. Uh, Yes, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit think so much alike that they don't need that kind of communication. It was important for us, though, that they did. Very important. Good point. All right. Anyone else want to comment on what they got out of this? Yes. Yes. It's not spoken at all, yes. Yes. Very much so, and a good point. And uh, to illustrate that, what I did was I brought in a, this is called a, compar a comparative Bible. It's just the four Gospels put side by side. And for example, chapter 18, you have the four Gospels and how they line up in similarity of wording. Chapter 17, there's nothing here because there is no other wording of a similar nature in the other Gospel. I'll leave this up here if anyone wants to look at it. 
it's very interesting and very helpful also. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment? Yes. Well, well I never thought Jesus was very clear uh, in his relationship. You know, he, he, he saying, you know, you can know who I am and so on. But this spelled out exactly the relationship, the organization. And that, because I'm now kind of a person that I need to know all about whatever it's been, that's what was important to me, to this particular, the text. Good. Good. Yeah, yeah it, it helps to fix in your mind the relationship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, of course... And the relationship with the apostles and and with us. Yes, that's right. I think that's, of course, that's the reason for this. And that's why I developed this several years ago. Because it shows us one God, but the three roles of that one God in the three different persons. And the fact that the Holy Spirit's role and time period is sort of a broken line because it has not been completed as yet. And it won't be until the end of time when all mankind will be uh, returned to the Father or condemn themselves. And please don't... Oh, well, that's right. Oh, he's talking about he's talking about the end of the world. Yes. Well, it's because he was acting as a human being at that time. And remember, and I don't think we've ever brought this up before, Jesus never used his divine powers for himself, for anything to serve just himself. Never. Even the fact that he could have wiped out all of the people who were in the process of trying to crucify him, or when he was being uh, whipped and beaten and so forth, you know, he could have just snapped his fingers and they would have been gone. He never did that because that was not his role or his purpose. Whatever he did in the way of divine acts was always to draw attention to what he was saying and to back up the fact that he came from God. So, yes, he even mentions that he didn't know when the end of the world is going to be. As God, he did, but that would have been using powers that weren't in line with what he was doing at the time. There's a, that's a good example of uh, something that is not in line with the role that he was fulfilling at the time. And it's the same thing for us. When we are asking for something or saying something that is out of line with our role in God's plan of salvation, you should be very, very careful. Lou, did you have a question? You shouldn't have been pouring it, that's why. 
anyone else have questions? Yes, ma'am. Well, there was two thoughts, trends of thoughts. The lady just asked before Christ, what did the Jewish people, if I assume you mean, believe about existence after death? All right. Half of them, and I'm not saying exactly 50%, but you know, a good portion of them believed that that was it. There was nothing afterward. And another portion of them did believe in a hereafter, uh, but they didn't quite define it. They never quite understood that it was returning to the Father. Right? But they did believe in a life hereafter. And that's pretty much the way it is today. A good portion of the Jews do not believe in any life after death, particularly the Orthodox. And you have some offshoots uh, called uh, the Ashkenazi, and there's another large group of the Hasidic uh, Jews do not believe in life after death. Most of the um, the more modern Jews do believe in a life after death, but there again, they are not. Uh, they have no uh, strict ideas of exactly what that means. Any other questions? Well, I hope you got something out of this because it is a very, very important subject and something that I really feel we should all take into consideration and think seriously during uh, the Easter season, particularly if you will take this idea of the challenge because that's what it's all about. Our will and our relationship with the Father. And that might be in your mind a little fuzzy yet, and that's all right, but work on it. Don't just leave it there. It's important, really, that you do something about it. And if you need help in any way, I'll be glad to offer what I can. All right. Let's close with a prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for giving us this time together. We thank you for the many graces and the blessings that we have received over the weeks through our study of the Gospel of John and the Book of Glory. Help us then continue as we get into the passion, death, and resurrection of your divine Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, over the next four weeks. Give us the courage to really see it as it was and the purpose for which you sent him. So we thank you for this time together. We just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.